Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Bedtime. It's one of the biggest struggles that parents face. Everyone's tired. We just want our kids to calm down and go to sleep. But how does our bedtime routine affect their sleep? Often we hear that we need our kids to be independent at bedtime, do things on their own, that that will lead to a good sleep. The problem with that is that there hasn't really been any research on how these actions affect bedtime until now. This week, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Lauren Philbrook, who's with me to talk about her new research looking at the question of how parental presence and contact, as well as the use of calming activities at night, influence children's stress levels and quality of sleep. If you've bought into the idea that parents need to separate themselves at bedtime, you might want to hear what Dr. Philbrook has to say. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Lauren Philbrook. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Colgate University. Her research focuses on understanding the development of children's biobehavioral regulation as it relates to health, academic skills, and adjustment. Dr. Philbrook utilizes several measures of child psychophysiology, including neuroendocrine and autonomic nervous system activity, as well as child sleep assessed using video recordings, actigraphy, and parent report. More recent work is particularly focused on how child regulation is related to adjustment in contexts of risk, including family and socioeconomic adversity. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to speak with you, Tracy. It is. I'm so excited. So we're talking about your new paper today. You have a new paper out in developmental psychobiology entitled Associations Between Parental Involvement at Bedtime and Young Children's Evening Cortisol and Nighttime Sleep, which is, I mean, right up my alley. The title alone was a clear idea that I had to jump into this. But um, before we get into the paper, I always like to ask people, because I think it's so interested, um, how did you become interested in infant and child sleep more generally, and then again, more specifically with this notion of of stress and bedtime? Mm -hmm. Um, So I first became interested in understanding the impact of routine caregiving context on child physiology when I was an undergrad. Uh, I was working on my senior thesis with Amy Hain at Williams College, and we were looking at how maternal caregiving during bath time was associated with cortisol stress responses and recovery in six to eight week olds. Um, And we were finding that infants in our sample, they all were showing a stress response, but then depending on the quality of caregiving they received, they could recover faster if they were receiving more sensitive caregiving. And I just found it so fascinating as an undergrad that these social experiences could get under the skin in that way. Um, And so I sought out to continue this type of work in grad school. And then I started working with Doug Teddy at Penn State on his project, Yesa. And he was really interested in parenting at bedtime and how what parents do at bedtime with infants might be helping them to sleep better across the night, kind of identifying aspects of parenting quality and practices that they were using to help promote better sleep. And he often, so I, I think he was really interested in this bedtime context for a few different reasons. So he spoke about it as being higher stress because uh, in comparison to a free play, for example, because parents and kids are tired at the end of a long day um, and there can be stress around for a lot of families, I think we're going to talk more about this. A lot of families, there's um, a separation that occurs between parents and kids, or between babies and, and or, um, parents in this case, and that can be stressful for for both parties. So he's really interested in that context, and because there might be things, specific things you can kind of identify that help kids to sleep better, and then use that in an intervention type of context. It's really 
readily translatable in that way. So I just became really interested and excited about studying that context and have continued with it since then. Can I ask quickly, do you have kids of your own? I do. I have a two-year-old. So do you practice all this with your kid? Is this like your first mini experiment every time when you do this is to see if it works? It's so funny because I imagine the videos all the time when I'm doing my bedtime with my daughter. However, I feel like I'm actually terrible at putting into practice many things that we've been identifying in our research. I, so I, I think one of the things I spoke a little bit about in the paper is this idea that more time or less time in contact with the child might help to promote more independent sleep if that's a goal for your family. And that's just not something I've been able to achieve very well. So she's still, I still smuggle her to sleep every night. <laughs> I think that's lovely. And we'll talk about that more for obviously if you want it to. But um, I always think, because it's funny, every time I read a paper, I've been spending, you know, coming up with our chat the last few nights looking at our evening with my some more leading up to bedtime. And I'm like, I do not know how this kid to get him to do anything calm. He's the one that kind of goes hops <laughs> into bed and just falls asleep. Like it's not, you know, but he's like, he's got cars going and races going and everything. And we're sitting there calm, but I'm like, uh, uh, <laughs> I think I'm failing at this, but we'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. So, so as you've kind of alluded to already, you actually have researched these influences of parental behavior and, and presence and everything on bedtime for some years now with, with Dr. Teddy and in that lab and in your work. Mm-hmm. And because this new paper, before we get to all this, even though we jumped ahead, it builds on this work that you've done. There is kind of a background to what we've known about the, influ- the influence pardon me, of parents on bedtime. So are you able to give kind of a brief synopsis for people so that everyone's kind of caught up on the same page, knowing kind of what we knew? Because I think some people that listen, they kind of get, well, why are we even looking at this? What, you know, what about X, Y, Z, or thinking we might know more than we do, and that some of this might seem self-evident? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think the work to date has generally shown that there is some kind of relationship between cortisol and sleep. They both have a circadian rhythm, and the circadian rhythm seems to emerge around the same time in infancy as you consolidate when you tend to, or consolidate sleep, you tend to show emergence of the typical cortisol rhythm at the same time. Uh, and within Doug's lab, he's shown in a few different ways that maternal emotional availability at bedtime was uh, associated with, with lower evening cortisol in babies. Um, and that mothers who were responding more frequently to their children's cues across the night had lower evening and morning cortisol levels. But we didn't look um, specifically at how cortisol then might be related to sleep in his study yet. Um, so I, I really was interested in this possibility because there's some research using other physiological measures like heart rate, for example, that more elevations in heart rate disrupt sleep for kids or make it harder to fall asleep at least. And they, um, I think Caroline Honiak had a, had a recent paper about this. There's definitely some premise that this higher arousal level in the evening can disrupt sleep. We hadn't specifically looked at that piece before. So I kind of wanted to link this literature showing that um, quality of parenting is associated with cortisol and that cortisol and sleep are, are linked as well and try to tie that together into one model to say, okay, well, is it possible then that when there's more parental presence or contact with a child at bedtime, could that potentially promote lower arousal in the form of lower cortisol and then that could maybe promote better sleep. Um, so that was sort of where my 
idea for the premise of this study came from was pulling together these two different ideas that I'd seen in the literature and in Doug's lab previously. Can I ask just quickly, because I know I've read it and I love that term, maternal emotional availability. And mm -hmm. what does that mean in the context of research? Because I think it, it, people have different ideas as to what that actually can look like. And I've seen mm -hmm. people write on it in ways that I'm going, I'm not sure that qualifies. Um, mm -hmm. And others that go, so in this research, what does that really kind of look like? Yeah, I think also it has to be kind of adapted to the bedtime routine. I think that was something that Doug did a lot of work with is what does it look like to be emotionally available available in the bedtime context specifically. Um, so for him, it was showing sensitive responsiveness to the child's cues within that context, which I think is true across all. Um, having a structure to the bedtime is, is really important. Um, there seems to be this kind of goal of the bedtime of getting the child um, into a, a quiet state um, and so that meaning that maybe at the beginning of bedtime there's more arousing activities going on but it slowly becomes more and more calm the parents um, lowering the, the, the sounds of their voice for example and sort of leading the child to that um, quiet place where it's easier to fall asleep and then I think the other two dimensions were um, not being hostile with the child so really calm and soothing and, um, and interactions with them and um, not like uh, low levels of manipulation or intrusiveness with the child as well, which there's you know a balance there because you do have a parenting goal that they need to be in their pajamas and they need to get into bed, but um, balancing the, the child's um, own autonomy with the need for the, the goals of the bedtime to be achieved as well. So this, those are some of the things that he was looking for in what would be an emotionally available bedtime specifically. Awesome, thank you. Okay, mm -hmm. so your study here, we are now linking cortisol and bedtime that have issues. And I know there's research in adulthood on cortisol and bedtime. Higher cortisol is definitely linked with worse sleep overnight mm -hmm. um, as something. So we're looking at it now in the context of children and whether parents can affect this. So I will add one of the things I loved about this study was the inclusion of so many objective measures. And I say this because I've looked at a lot of research on sleep. And every time I see a study based solely on subjective measures, I know it's easy. It's you get bigger samples, all that kind of stuff. There's there's a trade off here. But it's very frustrating because we don't always know what's going on under the skin or under the surface. Right. We can only presume and behaviors are not even close to a one-to-one -one correlation as to what's actually happening underneath mm -hmm. the skin there. So, you know, you had in this study alone, there was actigraphy for sleep, you use saliva swabs for cortisol, you use videography for parenting at bedtime. So you really have done it, but these are really intensive measures. And, you know, I, I wanna address quickly, like why did you focus so heavily on such objective measures? And what does that mean for the study itself? Like when we look at this, how does that influence, you know, who can participate? How many people you get? All this kind of stuff, because I'll just start now by saying, I know people look at, at certain studies and say, oh, it's such a small sample size, we're not taking anything from it. Or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, they only included this type of people, we can't take anything from it. And so I wanna be able to, give space to that to be understood the context of the methods of the study and what that meant in terms of the overall um, external validity of the study. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you for noting too, that was something that I uh, meant to bring up in the previous question, that there is work um, with adults with insomnia that the higher cortisol levels make it harder to sleep or associate with poor sleep. So that was another reason that I was drawn to assessing this, these relationships in childhood as well. Um, and yes, I felt really strongly 
that in trying to pull together these different pieces, the idea that parenting at bedtime was important for helping to buffer kids from stress and helping them to downregulate to be able to fall asleep, uh, and that lower stress is, is associated with better sleep, that using objective measures for each piece was really critical because if I'd ask parents to report on self-report on each variable or report on their child, I think we would really be more assessing parenting perceptions or parent perceptions of, of parenting, child stress, and child sleep. And I think that's a different question in itself. Um, and I feel really strongly about assessing parenting observationally because, because of it being that higher stress context, not that it needs to be super high stress, but more so than, than a free play and pulling for, pulls for more variability in the responses that you see from people, but also because I think it makes the results more translatable, as I was mentioning before, too, that I think then you can really say, okay, these are things we think that really help to promote less stress for kids and help them to sleep better. And that's something you can um, work with parents on those specific aspects. And I think that's much easier to um, be able to um, translate into an intervention context. Um, it did come at the cost, definitely, of a very small sample. And, and I do want to be very careful in thinking about the extent to which our findings apply to families you know, across the U.S., across the world. So we have you know, a very specific sample of people living in central New York in our rural area. And um, I really saw this as a kind of um, pilot or preliminary study to demonstrate that we can identify these types of relationships in a sample and that this type of work is possible. Because um, I think still, I think Doug was one of the very first ones to show on a larger scale that you can assess bedtime in this way. Um, and what I would really like to do is to be able to follow up on this, use this study as a um, starting point for, for following up on it with, with a longitudinal component and a much broader sample. So I definitely think I want to be really careful about the extent to which we say these findings apply to other families. And I think we might talk more about that too, especially we're talking about you know, parental presence and contact mattering. I think there's very likely the possibility for moderation there by other family context variables that we weren't able to assess in our study, but that I think will be really critical in the future. Yeah. And I love that mention of kind of looking at it as a, as a pilot kind of study because, and that's where this objective measure becomes so crucial because I do think that as much as it's a pilot, as much as it's a small study, there's at least a greater chance to say, okay, we can probably find something in mm -hmm. a larger sample because these are not perceptions that are, you know, heavily influenced by the cultural environment that mm -hmm. someone happens to be in at that point. We are looking mm -hmm. at, you know, what is happening at a physiological level for these children based on what we're seeing. And obviously there are variations in that. We see that in terms of responses to other types of parenting behaviors. So it's it's absolutely, I, I just, I think it's such a great way to start asking this question and to be able to take that first step towards showing some relationship between parenting and bedtime um, as it goes. So thank you. So what did you find? We found that lower child evening cortisol levels acted as an indirect pathway linking higher parental presence and contact at bedtime to more child nighttime sleep minutes and sleep efficiency. And that these relations were consistent regardless of if we controlled for other covariates, for example, sibling presence, if there was a rousing noise in, within the bedtime or in the, in the room the child's race, the length of the daytime nap that they were taking, and the length of the bedtime. So really trying to account for other variables within this bedtime routine that could potentially be um, affecting the, our, our main study um, variables of interest. So we were finding this indirect path for both parental pro presence and contact. And I want to quickly 
you know, specify some stuff here for people because I love all the covariates you had, right? So you're looking at, and it's really important because I'm just going to say, because I do this daily talking about, you know, the effects of covariates and whatnot. What we're saying is that all else being equal, so kids who have had the same amount of nap time, the same, you know, level of noise, everything, that parental contact or presence acts to lower cortisol, which then acts to increase sleep efficiency and total time. And it doesn't mean that kids who have this suddenly sleep two hours longer than all kids, regardless of all these other factors, it's just that all else being equal, they are doing better with that. Is that mm -hmm. a fair assessment to add in there? Yes, that was stated so elegantly. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's so hard because I think people miss that all else being equal. And so they see the research and start going, well, my kid only sleeps like nine hours a night, but they nap two hours during the day. And you have to kind of, no, 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 that, that all counts. That's part mm -hmm. of it there. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the co-variations you found that I thought was kind of interesting was this, this correlation between parental presence or contact and more and not just more noise, but more kind of that intrusive noise. What was that about? Is that just more people? Are parents just really loud? Are they doing something that's loud at the time? I was a bit surprised by that as well. It wouldn't have been something that we would have hypothesized from the outset of the study. Uh, but it's that is my thinking as well, that perhaps it's because when there's more people present, they spend more time together, there's more opportunity for some of those we didn't see high levels of arousing activities, but for some of those arousing um, noises to occur. So sometimes um, the parent may have just been involved in a more stimulating activity with the child and we and we coded it as that. And maybe that label itself is of arousing noise, it kind of has a, a negative connotation, but it wasn't necessarily that the bedtime itself had a negative connotation or had a negative feel. It was more that they were just involved in a louder and more exuberant activity in that moment. So kind of going back to my son and his Hot Wheels at night, yeah. where the game, yeah. it's not a bad yeah. thing. He's having a blast, but mm -hmm. it is certainly okay. Because that's good to know, because it's true, that terminology. I was thinking of like those noises that might be irritating or, or frustrating, but it was just that more arousal is what you were looking at. Okay. And actually, that, that leads me to another question on this. So you mentioned the findings with parental presence and contact, but there were actually three components you looked at, right? You looked at parental presence, parental contact, and then this parental use of soothing, quiet activities with the child. Is that right? Yes, so, that's right. And what happened there? Yes, so we were surprised because we had hypothesized that contact, presence, and quiet activities with the child would all be associated with lower cortisol levels and in turn better sleep. But we only found that pathway to exist for parental presence and contact and not for quiet activities. So I'm sort of come up with some possibilities for why that would be. Of course, we would want to see it be replicated in other ways. Um, but so we do know that from other, other research that definitely quiet activities are associated with better sleep. So helping the child to engage in, in less stimulating activities at bedtime is definitely something that parents are encouraged to do with good reason. But what my thinking is here is that perhaps it's the mechanism or pathway through which quiet activities affect sleep may be different. So maybe when we're thinking about presence and contact, it's that the parents providing this kind of stress buffering role for the child. You know, sometimes they might be having different anxieties or fears within this context about the, the day that 
preceded the bedtime or the upcoming day that the parents can help alleviate through their, their, their touch or if there's certain strategies that maybe parents are doing the child to cope with it. But maybe steering them towards quiet activities is more um, something that might be translated through other pathways, like for example, heart rate. So it's more rapidly responsive to smaller changes in the environment. And maybe we would see a little bit of a of, of lower heart rate and response to quiet activities and in turn better sleep. But we're not seeing quiet activities specifically as being playing this buffering role of stress. Um, so I think that this is maybe speaking to this idea that that children are in many ways are still or young children in the sample. We're looking at three to six year olds that they're co-regulating with the parent and having that parent presence and having contact with them is really helpful for that. Um, I also wanted to note though, so that's one maybe hypothesis of what's going on, but I also think it could potentially have to do with the way that we assess quiet activities because it was a little bit of a catch-all type of category. If the parent was talking quietly with the child, that went in there. If the parent was telling a story, singing a song, doing prayers. So there's quite a lot of activities because we didn't feel prepared yet to separate them out at that fine grain level to be able to look at differences and how they're impacting cortisol and sleep. It's possible that maybe if we pulled out some of those, we might see different relationships there. So that's something that I wanted to think about going forward too. When we do have a larger sample and we're able to follow up over time, maybe those specific activities can be separated out better to see which one, maybe some of them might be impacting cortisol too. So I think there's definitely more to look at there, but that's my first thinking about what could be happening. It's really interesting because I was, I was surprised by it. And well, I wasn't wholly surprised. I was surprised that there was absolutely like no relationship kind of going with cortisol through there, that there was just nothing. Because you do think from yeah. an arousal perspective, the calmer we are, the less cortisol we're listing. Like it just seems to go hand in hand. So the fact that that didn't happen, I think really speaks to that co-regulation piece that you you kind of mm -hmm. highlighted as a potential being what's happening there. But it also struck me as, and here we get into the talking about, you know, applicability, but so much of the advice, especially in that three to six range is about, okay, focus on, you know, read by yourself before bed, go do all the stuff. We focus so much on the quiet activities and not on the parental presence or contact piece. And it's not saying as you found in other work and we've seen quiet activities can promote sleep in other ways, but we're not reducing stress by doing this. And yet that seems to be one of the overarching messages that a lot of families get is that if their kids aren't doing these quiet activities, they're going to be too wired, too stressed out to get to sleep. But yet that's not really the case at hand, as at least in this preliminary work that we've seen here. So mm -hmm. I really found it was really fascinating to see that distinction um, as to what's happening. So in terms of that one piece of advice, and I, I want to get to that whole contact you know, co-regulation, everything in a minute. And, but in terms of looking at that idea of what we're telling families, would you say that's possibly a bit of a outdated idea to send your kid away for quiet activities if you're doing them as opposed to perhaps being involved in them as well to, to read a story together instead of going off and go read by yourself to calm down before bed, so to speak? I do, I do think so. So I do want to take care to not put more on parents' overburdened plate, but I do think that there, the results are suggesting that there is benefit to the parent being present for at least some portion of the bedtime routine. I don't think it necessarily means, depending on your 
family values and preferences. I don't think you have to stay until the child falls asleep. That's going to, I think there's a lot of factors that fall into that. But I think that some some time spent with the child at the end of you know, a busy day and taking that opportunity to connect with your child is really regulating for them and being physically present with them and um, spending time in contact with them seems to be buffering stress in, in a way that's really useful to children. So I think it's both. I think you can incorporate both into the routine, but if parents are able to spend some of that time, I think it can go a long way. Yeah. And it's true. It's, it's, I know it's so hard because people feel like there's this long list of things they're supposed to do yes. in the evening and you're tired and you're stressed and everything. But, you know, it, it brings me back to um, another podcast episode I had with um, Lenka Tinkova and it was the concept of Uspavani. And it's that mm -hmm. Czech concept of um, parents are supposed to be together to see their children go from the awake world into the sleep world. And they support that because it's viewed if they're there during that transition, the child will have good dreams, good sleep, all this stuff that you're kind of seeing, but it requires this. And parents that buy into that concept and have it as a kind of external concept to latch on to, say it actually calms them at bedtime too. They find themselves as well of just being able to kind of relax and be there through it all. So part of me always wonders when we talk about the concern of adding more to parents is also, how are we framing it? Are we mm -hmm. saying, here's another checklist thing that you need to add on or, hey, here's something that actually might even help you. You might even get to relax. And I mean, the number of parents I know, myself included, who has snuggled a child not planning to fall asleep at the same time and then woken up at 2 a.m. going, I'm still in my clothes and I haven't brushed my teeth. <laughs> oh my goodness. Because it is so relaxing when you really get down to it. So I always think with the messaging, there's so much to be done in terms of how we phrase it to not be a, a scolding, finger wagging, you must do this, 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 and more of a, okay, can this be something that's enjoyable for everyone as they go through things? Um, so that's just a little, a little note on that there. But um, so this kind of gets to the which I saw, which is, as you found this, this parental presence versus contact. And you kind of alluded to it earlier at the beginning, the question of, um, these were two separate pieces that you looked at. It wasn't like you looked at parental presence in a model and parental contact in a model. And you did find that the difference between the two models, it was slightly more significant for parental presence over contact was one. And in the paper, you gave a bit of a nod to that idea of building children's autonomy and sleep. You yourself said, I maybe should be doing this with my two-year-old, et cetera. Um, now, you know, because brief with a paper I've recently written, I actually question if building autonomy and sleep is, is a goal that we need to have. It's not necessarily a bad goal for certain families, but it's not a goal that I think everyone needs to have. It's very much a Western oriented ideal that we have when it comes to sleep. But so if we look at this, I mean, let's actually just backtrack and start with that. The idea of building autonomy in sleep, this kind of seems to suggest that children aren't quite ready for that at full autonomy yet. We talk about the co-regulation piece you mentioned. It feels to me like you know, we have this idea that by a year of age, they should be sleeping independently and not need any help and so on. But here we're looking at much older children who seem to really reap a benefit of having that 
presence and contact there. Um, how do you reconcile that with this idea of autonomy building when we're seeing that there still is almost a need for at least some co-regulation? Again, it doesn't mean you have to stay there the whole night. It doesn't mean everything, but that there does seem to, to be a piece of the puzzle in which we're looking at kids connecting with their parents before bed. Yeah, I think that in many ways, it does depend a bit on what your, your parenting goals are and what you would like what would be sort of your preference and what you think your child's preference is for um, sleeping. And I think that the par parents are providing kind of scaffolding. Maybe that's one way that if it is a goal for parents for the child to sleep independently, they can think about parent parental presence or contact at bedtime as providing that scaffolding for them to learn to be able to sleep well on, and then slowly pull back on that if that's something that, that they wanted. But I... I agree with you that I think there's a lot of individual and cultural differences around people's preferences about that. And I really want to take care to um, not take just one perspective on what sort of is the ideal bedtime routine or bed or sleep for children because of that. Um, so in the paper with the, you know, I suggested that maybe more parental presence and less contact is potentially promoting this ability to, to sleep better and maybe it's because it's allowing this opportunity to learn to, to fall asleep independently but there is definitely as you mentioned that's pretty tenuous when you're thinking about the findings that we had the the, the differences in the effects were not very strong as as you had pointed out they were quite similar um and also with the with the small sample there wasn't a huge differences in the in the percentages of people who were spending you know, lots of time and presence in contact versus those who were spending only a lot of time and presence and not in contact. So we're not able to really speak, speak on that very much. So I, I do think that that's something that we would need to look at further to be able to really say that presence was of primary importance for this age group over contact. Um, additionally, I think something that would better of shed light on this is if we were able to look at the timing of contact and presence within the routine. So we were looking at these overall sub variables. And I think that the literature suggests that if your goal is for your child to, to sleep independently throughout the night that you want to allow them the opportunity to at least be falling asleep on their own. So you, you wouldn't be in contact during those moments. And we can't specifically look at that with these sum variables that we have. So it's possible maybe that the timing of the contact maybe matters there too. But I agree with you about this kind of larger question of, it does that need to be your goal? And certainly it does not. I, I agree. I think it all depends on, on the family and um, what you think works best for you and your child. So if that is your goal, these are some strategies that might, that might work well for you. Um, but if it's not, I think that that's something that's completely that works well for your family, then that's what people should go with too. Which I love. Yeah. And that's, I think, kind of one of those pieces there. And I was going to just mention, because you kind of brought up some of the the um, the correlations, the effect sizes. So it was, you know, the correlation between them was very, very high between contact mm -hmm. and presence. So can I ask, what was just some examples that you saw of people having presence without contact where it happened because mm -hmm. I just think and I don't know maybe my kids are just particularly snuggly but like even reading a book we can't like I do where's Waldo every night with my kid and 
we can't do it without being right up and snuggled in and arms around and we're looking at it together. And I just can't even imagine how we would do that with no contact, right? Like that's one of those things. So I was just curious, what were some of the examples that people did in terms of these ideas where there wasn't contact, but they were still present? It's mm-hmm. a good question. So, right, anecdotally, thinking back to some of the videos, sometimes we saw um, parents kind of standing in the room in the presence of their children if there were siblings there while the children were engaging in an activity together as siblings. Um, sometimes we saw the child laying on the bed. Maybe actually we saw this more, this maybe the most frequent context. If the child was laying in their beds, kind of snuggled up um, with a stuffed animal and the parent was sitting on a chair next to their bed. So it is kind of a gray area there. If the parent was laying on the bed partially with them and was right up next to them, we would count that as contact. But if they were removed from the bed, holding the book out, we didn't count that as contact. So there's a distinction there. Um, I think those are the two that that come to mind as the most typical kind of differences that that we would see. But that would be something that would be really interesting to look at on a more systematic level. Yeah. And that actually just raised another question for me of, you know, the sitting on the bed reading, I suddenly see it. I'm like, yeah, of course, if you're sitting in a chair and you're not snuggled up in bed, I just mm-hmm. don't have a chair in my room. So that's what <laughs> happened. Um, but it was the sibling mentioned too, because all of a sudden they were talking about parental presence and contact, but at that age group, at least, you know, looking kind of cross-culturally to other cultures, in that age group, when kids are not sleeping close with their parents, they are sleeping with other siblings. So when you factor in other people, I think that can affect things as well, because although the parent may be present, that contact may not be necessary because they have other people there that they are also close to. And I know I've, I have friends that have, you know, fond memories of sleeping with their, you know, siblings up to 15, 16 years of age, sharing the room and always chatting and having that. And that was that sense of safety, calm, et cetera, having someone else there for that. So I would wonder how much when you have parents that can do presence without contact, is there also still other people around to kind of mitigate any potential stress because they're not alone? I think that that does seem possible because we were finding that that kids with siblings were sleeping longer. So it does seem possible that that is potentially playing a role there. Um, that we could maybe try to tease that apart more further in the future. It is an interesting variable. I didn't necessarily expect to find that. I need to quote that because I have so many families I have spoken to who are like fearful of putting siblings in the same room. They're like, they're never going to sleep. It's not going to happen. And here it's like, no, 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 no. They might sleep better. (laughs) I know bedtime might be a bit harder. There might be a bit more up there. But once you get them to sleep, that's really fascinating. I didn't even because that wasn't in the paper. So that was something that I, I didn't even know. But it makes sense, I think, just that sense of of comfort and knowing someone else is there. And, you know, you always see those videos that go viral of like one kid climbing out of bed and sneaking yeah. into their siblings and then, you know, back again. <laughs> it's just one of those things that I absolutely love. But that's really interesting. So because I also, you know, I look at some of the research and, you know, I, I think of uh, Mikkel Kahn's work at she did the presence and sleep training recently a couple of years ago and, you know, did find that for kids who were anxious, that presence was associated with less stress and everything. But it still didn't improve sleep. Right. So like when we looked at the actual objective measures of sleep pre and post, there wasn't actually much of an improvement in any of the groups. So 
you know, it just raises that question of, again, that contact potentially being needed. And again, there were no siblings in this one, too. They were fully alone. So it was, you know, what's happening. But it felt like that was one of the pieces that might still be there in affecting cortisol levels if you're alone with no contact versus with someone else all the time with no contact, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. um, but which also brings me to another issue that I think is kind of a bigger one and, and one we may want to talk a bit more of, but in a small study, we can't tease out kind of the individual level effects. And you kind of already hinted at this as, you know, for whom does it work and what are we looking at? But it seems to me when it comes to sleep, there is so much variability in what children need and child temperament, parent behaviors at night. There's a whole long list. So I want to start with like child temperament because I think it's one of the biggest, but I don't think some kids could sleep well without contact. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some kids I've even met, I've worked with families that like, if I'm my kids, like, don't touch me. I'm sleeping like, dude, get away, sit there, don't leave, don't touch me. And they do way better with that. So I think when I, I, I think about this kind of breaking it down, do you envision a point where you could actually start to look at these individual level effects to kind of really tailor in some of this intervention towards families saying, if your child is more this temperament, you might want this approach. If your child is this temperament, you might want why approach? Is that something that you're think you'll be able to do with kind of a larger longitudinal study? Or is that just like 10 years down the road? Absolutely. That that's something that I would love to be able to do to be able to better identify what type of parenting strategies or um, components of the bedtime routine are going to best promote sleep for individual children. So like you were saying, thinking about children who are highly active or more exuberant, who might be higher in negative affect. I think there's definitely the possibility for different relationships there. And I would be so interested in exploring that further to be able to really pinpoint these are kind of the constellations of parenting behaviors that work best for this child. I think that that's that's sort of the end goal of all of this, I think, to better identify what would work for a family, for the parent, and for the the child given their own unique characteristics. And do you think when we think about temperament, like you kind of mentioned that higher negative affect, et cetera. I mean, is there anyone that you envision this sensitive and responsive parenting not working for? So personally, I, I think that it would be best for all children. Um, I, I think that what matters is that the parent and child form a, a high quality relationship, which I think should be possible uh, regardless of child temperament um, with a sensitive and responsive parent and that developing that high quality relationship could could help promote better sleep. So that's sort of where I fall on that. I, I think that those pieces of it are, um, are always going to be important. But I'm thinking it's possible that maybe the amount of presence or contact perhaps that matters or that's most important for a child, that piece of it could maybe vary a bit. But I still think that that responsiveness and sensitivity is always going to be key. So if I ask about your own child, because you say you've struggled with the autonomy, you still snuggle to sleep every night. Do you think that's your child's temperament that's kind of coming in? And like, or is it just, and I say this with no judgment, or is it just, it's just a really lovely time together that you don't want to give up? 
I think it's more the latter. I I think she could do it. So, I mean, there's definitely nights where I'm not able to be there and my husband does a bedtime routine. He doesn't um, do that. He I think he helps her to sleep with his, like, pats on her back in the crib. Um, but he allows for more autonomy and independence. And she's able to get sleep just fine and at daycare and everything. So I, I think that it's more of a, a choice that she she seems to enjoy it. She Now she can verbalize what she would like to do. We'll ask her. And she says that that's her preference. And it's my preference too. So it works for us. Um, I think that's sort of where I've come down in thinking about the literature and how it applies to my own situation that I think you have to do what seems to be working for your child and for you. And I think that's where we fall. But I do often at times wonder um, as far as her temperament, because she, she probably is a little bit more cautious and um, maybe a little more nervous so but I don't know if that's because of the way that I've maybe parented her or if it's her temperament and characteristics that she shares with me or if it's um yeah I'm, I'm not sure which which piece it's coming from but I do think that a lot of it is coming from our own choices of, or preferences about the routine that's why we do it that way and I think this kind of leads for me with temperament and stuff when we kind of tease this apart is it is how to put this I think the way you said, like, did I cause that issue for her is that we do, we turn around and we put it on parents in a negative and there is nothing wrong with a child that is cautious or, you know, internal. And the idea that we're supposed to parent for certain outcomes is I think mm -hmm. where I, I get this as opposed to parenting for the relationship. So like you said, this works for you guys as your relationship, which is beautiful and lovely and she can vocalize it and you can do it when it, when you're there and, and it's possible. Um, but where I always get cautious with sleep research is we seem to be parenting with this ideal of sleep being the be all and end all over the relationship over everything else. And it's not that sleep's not important. Sleep is incredibly important. I'm, I will acknowledge, but I don't think it usurps the relationship or being that responsive and sensitive. And I, I certainly love that you can talk about this research and talk about, no, I don't do that. <laughs> that is what I am. Because I think it's really important for people to know, like we can look at these issues and it can inform but it doesn't have to be, you must do this again, because here we are, you know, and, and your daughter probably sleeps very soundly and is her low cortisol from all that contact and everything is lovely. And you have the bond that goes with it too, that, that goes beyond sleep. So that's kind of one of those things. Like I think about my daughter who is very highly sensitive to everything. Like if I had tried to leave her alone to sleep, it would have been, I, I can tell you now an absolute disaster like just like as my husband and I say we think about it we're like we would have broken her like she would have been broken and my son on the other hand he loves his snuggles to sleep but once it's actually bedtime we read our book like he plays cars we read our book and then he like rolls over mom don't touch me and oh <laughs> but then all night he'll we still co-sleep so all night he'll then roll in and like pull my arm around him to snuggle and everything so he's getting all that it's just at that falling asleep time he's like nope he has his favorite blanket and that's like, that's it now. And he used to snuggle all the time, but those different temperaments were like, it's super, it's interesting to see how much that impacts sleep as well as to who they are and everything goes on. So the other piece to this in terms of temperament is also, I think, parenting stress. That's that big one because 
you know, you've alluded to it. We've, we've talked about it, but I think about parental presence and contact. If you're not calm during those times, are you actually calming your child? And this goes back to, I think, something you said, Dr. Teddy, you know, first looked at when we talked about that maternal availability at bedtime is not being hostile, not being stressed out. And yet so many families, because this overarching goal of I must get you to sleep triggers anxiety and stress. And especially then if a child like you doesn't want to get into pajamas or doesn't want to do this, we turn it into a battle. And I have to like, did you see that in these videos? Did you see that have, was there enough cases to see if there was any effect on that stress of having that, that negative relationship going on at bedtime? We definitely anecdotally saw examples of stress for sure, where families um, became frustrated with one another, for example. And when I was mentioning that goal before of maybe allowing some independence or autonomy within the bedtime routine to make choices, that sometimes it was difficult for parents if the child's choices went directly against the goals of bedtime, um, which is very understandable. So we definitely saw some, but I do think that overall our sample was experiencing kind of normative daily stressors rather than thinking about chronic levels of toxic stress. I don't think that that was something that was typical within our sample. And I do think that if that were the case, we would have to look at moderating relationships because I, I think you're absolutely right that contact and presence of a highly stressed parent is going to look really different. And we're thinking about the stress buffering role for kids and, and buffering cortisol, it's, it's going to be much more challenging. So that's something, I think that's probably what I see as one of the biggest limitations of us not being able to look at that specifically, because I think that's going to be really key. I, I think that in the context of, of daily stressors that um, it's possible you know, that a, a high quality relationship or bond with a parent can kind of um, overcome that, that we all have, you know, within that, in that context, just still being with a parent that you really trust and that has provided that co-regulation consistently across your lifetime, even if they're having a stressful day on that day. I, I still think my feeling is that there still is a lot of power for their presence in contact, but in these um, situations where our parents are undergoing enormous levels of stress, I just think it's, it must be so much more challenging to be able to do that for the child. So, so definitely I want to be really careful with the findings there. And I think about your other work with like at risk factors and everything that that must play into the sleep as well for these, these kids as well, because if the parents are experiencing strong chronic stress, the kids are going to be experiencing yes. strong chronic stress. And that's going to also then impact that cortisol and sleep and everything else as it goes on. So it is. And so when you see parents, when they, they face a stressor, because this is something that goes on, and I realize we're in the realm of anecdote of the video here and whatnot, but, you know, I, because I talk to families a lot about this when I, when I've talked about sleep and it is, how do you get yourself out of that cycle so that you don't cycle upwards into something negative? Did you see specific things that families were doing that helped them kind of break whatever negativity was coming because the child may have made a choice that was contrary to getting to sleep or whatnot so that it didn't become a, okay, that's it. I'm done. Get in, there. <laughs> you know, ending the day that way, as opposed to, okay, step back, take a deep breath, 
everything's going to be okay. Even if my kid goes to sleep in no pajamas, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is that, was there certain techniques you were able to observe families successfully use to navigate those particular struggles? I think one thing that first comes to mind is if the family was um, had the luxury of having two parents, then the trade-off could be really helpful where sometimes you have to kind of call in the other parent that, you know, I, I need a moment myself. And the way our coding worked is we coded parental presence period. We weren't looking at differences between um, all of our families um, that were in two parent families were moms and dads. So we weren't looking at differences between them. Um, but I think that was one of the key things is that taking a moment for yourself and tagging out was really beneficial. And sometimes it's hard to do that in the moment, I think, because you're like, no, I'm going to finish what I started here and accomplish this. But I think that could be key. For families that were doing the bedtime routine on their own, a parent taking a moment for themselves, I think, still is helpful. At this age, kids are able to um, have some time without being supervised in their their room. So I think that would be the key for me to take a moment to to regulate yourself before you can then help your child to be able to do so. I wish I had some more ideas just like at, at my fingertips, but that's the first one that I'm thinking of as far as parents being able to um, work on their own kind of ability to regulate in that moment. I know it's helpful for me, at least that sometimes I have to do that um, to be able to be at my best with my child. Oh, I, I need it too. And I always tell people my thing when I get overwhelmed is I literally will sit down and just close my eyes and be like, I am a rock in a storm. I'm a rock in a storm. And I'm yeah. like, just visually, I'm like, that's it. Everything can be going on around me, but I have to just like, that's it. And it's helpful for tantrums during the day, like meltdowns. I'm just like, that is, and for me, it's the physical act of sitting down. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm standing, I'm ready to move. I'm ready to go out and do stuff. Whereas if I'm sitting, I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm just closing eyes, getting into the rock in the storm and nothing you do will bother me. I will sit here for thousands of years with all the storms and survive. So it is like, I I think about that, but it's true. And that two parent household is very helpful. But of course, not everyone has that luxury. And I think you're right at that age, you know, to say, I'll be back in five minutes can be very helpful to take that time and read your book, play with your cars, jump on your bed, don't care, just take it. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things I always say to families is, and maybe this is contrary, but if you need that time, don't care about what they're doing. I mean, as long as it's not dangerous, but you know, if they want to get out of bed and run around their room, okay, take your time. That's the more important piece is taking those moments to re-regulate yourself to get back in because if you're worried about what they're doing you're not regulating yourself you're still cycling upward as you go so it always seems to be that kind of piece there i also like what you said about changing goals sometimes i find myself being like well we have to wear these types of pjs tonight well we don't actually have to if she wants to wear clothes that are going to keep her warm enough that's fine so i think sometimes reframing that for myself is helpful and that sometimes the similar things can accomplish the same goal. Exactly. And I, I have become, it's, I know it gets overused, but the pick your battles is, Mm -hmm. you know, what my kids half the time when they were young would want to wear clothes to bed. They did Mm -hmm. not. And then they'd wear pajamas during the day. So we have some, you know, little issues (laughs) going on there, but that's fine. It was, but I was like, do I care if they go out in public in pajamas? Nope. Do I care if they're wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt to bed? Nope. If they're warm and they're comfortable, 
it really, you know, that that's not a bother for me. So it's true, trying to be able to kind of pick what really is important. Do you need to brush your teeth? Yes. That is, you know what I mean? And then, but maybe we could do it earlier when you're not so tired and cranky and wanting to get into bed. That might be, you know, figuring out little things like that that tend to work, but it's picking out what is the most important. And then the rest, you know, again, there's only so much you have control over, but I think we do, especially I find when I'm tired at night, I become more narrow and I want to have more control over stuff because I'm just tired and that just makes it less stressful for me. But you don't have control with kids in that way. So it's being able to relinquish that is almost as good as just having control, actually, I find mm -hmm. if I don't care. So that's kind of one of those things. But yeah, it is. And I would love to see this. Like, I think that future goal of kind of incorporating these parental factors, are they chronically stressed? Are they not? Is it two parents? Do you have support? What kind of stress even is happening? How is that negativity being played out? And then the child temperament factors as to what they have. The sibling factors, are there siblings involved in all of this? Is such a crucial piece to us understanding how parents, you know, well, even just how parents parent at bedtime with all those different factors going in and then the effects on kids. So I very much look forward to however many years of research you've got going on here. So I am, thank you. So this is, I mean, this has been so lovely for me and I am so thankful for you to come on and talk about this research because I think it's really important. And it really was, like I said, I was surprised by the, the quiet activity findings not being linked to cortisol because of the arousal piece. But I can see what you mean by it might affect other elements like heart rate. And that's why it's linked to sleep over the cortisol piece. Um, but this presence contact debate, we'll have to see what happens. I still, mm -hmm. I think the presence of siblings, as you mentioned, might be crucial to that one as to who else is all there. But um, are there any last comments you have? I mean, you've been doing this research for years, you're going to be doing it for years more. Based on all of that, are there any things that you would want families to take from the research, even if it's just don't take it too seriously, um, to help them on their parenting journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's been really nice to be able to get into these findings with somebody else and have this conversation. And you've really helped me to think more thoughtfully about our results, so I really appreciate it. Um, I think the main takeaway for me is thinking about how much impact that parents can have just by showing up. So kind of what I was saying before that I didn't want, want them to feel like there's one more thing being added to their plate, which I think parents right now more than ever are so overburdened and overwhelmed. Um, but just thinking about how your presence and closeness alone with your child can be so regulating and helpful to them and that you don't have to be perfect or do anything really special. Just, just you is what really can help. Um, I don't think it means, as I was saying before, that they have to stay with their child until they fall asleep, but that's not their preference. But just having Kind of setting aside a little bit of time together within that within that context to be able to connect can be really valuable to them and then uh, thinking about how when the child is, is sleeping well and sleeping better that has reverberations for the whole family and it may mean that parents get better sleep too and everybody's kind of going into the day better rested and better able to confront the daily stressors and challenges and tasks that we all do so hopefully it can have a really important impact for everybody in the family I absolutely love that. Your presence is enough. That is mm -hmm. such a crucial piece and one that I don't think parents feel that often. They kind of feel they have to do more 
actually mm -hmm. be impactful. And so that is just such a beautiful way to close out. So for, for the families listening, you are enough. Just you being there, sitting there in a room watching your child play is enough. So if mm -hmm. you can make time for that, it can have a positive impact on on your child. So thank you so much, Lauren. This has been so wonderful. I will have to get you on again when you get the next round out because we'll have to dig into this again. Thank you so much. I would love to do that. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are one of those families that might have felt a little bit of guilt about all the time you spend snuggling your child at bedtime, I hope this research has helped. And again, if you do want to go back, I recommend listening to the concept of Uspavani, which is in an earlier podcast from this season. Don't know when we'll be back, but in the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting. <laughs>